Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Is our entire educational system based on an illusion that we can dramatically change the distribution of academic outcomes? Is it a lie that we believe every student will do well? Are some students just more academically inclined than others? Do our universities perpetuate social injustice by promoting a cult of smart? Let's discuss. Hello, warm greetings, everyone. We're here with Greg and Dr. DeBoer, uh, who I am excited about chatting with. Uh, I'll call you Freddie. You're, you're a writer and a PhD, academian, uh, work at a university, and you're a prolific uh, essayist and blogger working with New York Times, Harper's, LA Times, Politico, Jacobin. And I just think you're... Uh, an original thinker, and when I read your book, um, which is The Cult of Smart, uh, I passed it on to Greg and said, you know, we gotta, we gotta get this guy on. I really, I really like this fellow, and um, I'm glad you, glad you decided to come with us. That's, that's great. Yeah, I'm uh, happy to be here. Thank you. Good, good. And, uh, Let's chat a little bit about your book. Greg and I have chat, we talked about it. I thought it was just a breath of fresh air. It had me challenge my thinking. I've read a bunch of these new meritocracy books lately, uh, the meritocracy trap and so forth. And you took that into education and um, Give us some background on the cult of smart and how it fits with meritocracy in our, our present educational system. Sure, you know, I mean, um, a couple of different things converged at the same time to uh, make me want to write the book. Uh, for one, I spent 10 years uh, teaching college, uh, freshman college students uh, <clears throat> uh, writing, freshman writing, um, and some other things. I mean, I did, I taught all people from all different levels, but the freshmen were always the ones that made the biggest impression on me because they come to you sort of unmolded. And it's, they also made a big impression on me because even at good, at good schools, a very large percentage of them will never graduate. Um, there is a tremendous number of uh, American college students who never make it past the first year. Um, and I was seeing firsthand um, a lot of these people who uh, would come into the system uh, and they were not equipped to be there. Um, and many of them didn't want to be there and they would sort of get ground up and some of them would sort of get it together enough to get minimally passing grades and move on. And many of them would drop out. Um, and the problem was that I saw what a waste this was for them, but uh, taking on student loan debt uh, and uh, <clears throat> buying an education they couldn't afford and that they then couldn't finish. But I also saw you know, the stress it was putting on the system that the, the college system was suffering from um, a lot of students who should never have been there in the first place. Um, this was true at uh, the University of Rhode Island. This is true at Purdue University. This is true at Brooklyn College. And none of these are schools that um, lack for brilliant students as well, but they were all public universities that many people were going to um, because that was the, the local uh, public university where they wanted to get their degree. And the, the schools were straining uh, under the um, effort to remediate these students who probably should not have been there in the first place. The, pro the trouble was, and what they would say to me is, 
you know, where else do I go if not school? Um, I had a student uh, at URI in the University of Rhode Island. And, uh, you know, he was one of these students who just clearly did not want to be there. And, you know, to me, I was always a little bit um, baffled by why you would spend tens of thousands of dollars to go to an institution when you didn't want to be there. And I, you know, I had to have one of these come to Jesus talks with him and try to say like, hey, you know, what's going on? Why are you here if you don't want to be here so bad? And he said, you know, his father was a fisherman in Rhode Island and Rhode Island's fishing industry is just in perpetual decline, right? And there simply was not um, another set of outs for him, right? There wasn't a clear path to a stable middle, cl middle class income for him without a college degree. And that was not true of people of his father's age. His father um, was able to own a home, own a car, put a couple kids into college without having a college degree. And so I saw all these people getting forced into the funnel of the college system um, who shouldn't be there. And I said, something is, is badly broken here. You mentioned the fact that there is a, a pretty big um, mini genre of uh, people attacking uh, meritocracy. And um, I think that uh, one place where I tend to disagree with many of them is um, they will often attack meritocracy from the standpoint of questioning whether merit exists. In other words, they'll say, oh, you know, if you look at it, everyone actually has the same merit and everyone has the same ability. Um, and I think that that is um, not true. I think that different people have very profoundly different levels of skills in various different things, and the market assigns different values to those skills. And we can't just wave that away just because it would be convenient for us. Um, but also um, <clears throat> pretending that everyone has the same level of skills ultimately is an act of cruelty because then the, all the pressure falls down on the individual, right? If we say that everyone has the same set of skills, has the same potential, then we're essentially telling those kids who get into college and fail out, well, it's your own fault, right? I mean, if you have the same potential as anybody else and you failed and they succeed, it must be because you didn't do a good enough job. And so the book really was emerged from this pro profound sense that something had gone badly wrong, that the everyone should go to college um, mantra, which as I mentioned in the book, every president since at least Ronald Reagan um, has said publicly that college is the solution to our economic woes. Um, that this mantra had caused great damage to the country and that people are not thinking clearly about solutions to that problem. So your book, I'll tell you why I liked your book so much, because I, I spent my life as an educational a director of research and evaluation in a large school, and I sat through all of the meetings from the, you know, the, the, the nation at risk until where we are right now, influence of Gates and education. And what you, what you say is so, is so correct, and I believe in common sense, but if you said it in any one of my middle management bureaucratic meetings, there'd be a gasp. <laughs> mm -hmm. And one of the, one of the tenets that you, you say is that not all students have equal ability, and yet mm -hmm. our political policy is built on this myth that every child will succeed, every child will graduate, that the more people we spend to send to college and learn STEM will drive our economy. All these things are, are wrong. And yet that's the foundation of our belief system in, 
public education today. Is that, uh, tell me, am I correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, and I've been a guest in the same way as you have been in the past when I was first, first formulating these ideas. So um, I tell a story in the book, um, which is a story I like because I just think it's illustrative, which is that um, I was at some sort of a cookout when I was a PhD student and there were students from a bunch of different disciplines there. Um, there was a family I didn't I didn't know the student, but he was uh, I, I think in math or engineering or something like that. Um, he was a PhD student as well. He was chi- from China, um, and he had his wife and a couple kids there. And the wife was sort of doting on her older son, and she was saying, you know, he's so smart. He is the top of his class. He's in a robotics club. That sort of thing that parents always do. And then their younger son runs by, and he's sort of making funny noises with his mouth and being goofy. And she says, he is maybe not so smart. Um, and I felt myself sort of cringe. I saw other Americans around sort of, you know, cringe because you don't say that your child is maybe not so smart. But when I thought about it later that night, you know, I thought to myself, if she had said, um, you know, he doesn't have uh, an ear for music, I would never would have noticed. If she had said he'll never be a great visual artist, I wouldn't have cared. If she said he's not a good athlete, I wouldn't have cared. It wouldn't have occurred to me that those would be especially um, damning statements, but with smart and with smart alone, it becomes a totalizing sense of your overall value as a human being. And I don't want to have that kind of assumption within me that that's true, because that that's not that doesn't reflect my values. I want to see human beings for their the fullness of their humanity, and there's all sorts of things that human beings uh, can do and be that are not connected to what we traditionally consider intelligence that are so valuable, right? Being compassionate, being uh, inventive, being uh, open-minded, being uh, slow to anger, uh, being um, wise, being curious, etc. These things all matter. And so the titular cult of smart is just this assumption. I mean, it's a lot of things, but one of the things is it's just this baked in assumption in our system and in our culture that um, smart is the one thing that is a totalizing thing about you. And part of the reason why people are so uh, loath to ever admit that different people have different levels of academic ability is because it seems to be damning people. And so what I want to do is not pretend that we can make everybody uh, equal in the classroom because we can't, but rather to ask, why are we working from that assumption in the first place? I, I, uh, I was a school psychologist. I've given a thousand IQ tests. Mm -hmm. And when Charles Murray came out with his bell shaped curve, I just refused to read it uh, because I, you know, I just thought it was obviously um, eugenics and racist and so forth. He was on Sam Harris podcast. I don't know if you saw when he was on and uh, created a lot of backlash. And uh, since then, I, re- I reread his book. And from just a science point of view, it's fairly correct. He, I mean, he, he picks I, up. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I'll say about the bell curve is that the central argument that people respond to is actually not really articulated in the book. So people believe that the, that the bell curve says that uh, Black people are genetically inferior, and that's the reason for their intelligence, um, uh, for their, for their uh, perceived lower intelligence, their failures in school, whatever. So in other words, the, the whole construct of Black people being less intelligent is actually real, and the reason is genetic, according to this book. That's not actually directly articulated in the bell curve. Right. Um, now, I certainly don't believe that uh, the the academic achievement gap is genetic in origin. Um, Her, uh, Hernstein and, and um, Murray sort of uh, 
they sort of play at the edges of it. And they and there's a, a passage in which they sort of say, you know, we're not going to talk about what the admixture of the environment and the genes are right now, but it's an open scientific question. Um, it was broadly perceived to be and remains perceived to be that the argument the, they're making the affirmative act, uh, argument that they that they are that that you know that everything that is a perceived academic difference between races is predominantly genetic. Now, um, Murray has kind of spent his career kind of troubling this thing, this uh, um, this argument, and he loves to sort of stick his toe in. So I don't think that it's necessarily like an injustice that. The book has been cast the way that it has, but it remains true that like almost no one who criticizes the bell curve has read it, and that's always, I think, suboptimal. Right, right, and and it's still it's still going going on. He was on um, Coleman Hughes the other the month ago, and it was a great interview with Coleman Hughes. But I don't like how he uses oh, it uh, for his policy. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, I I, uh, I have to defer to both of you in terms of your experiences. Uh, I spent a couple of years in graduate school teaching courses, but I uh, haven't been essentially a teacher, but I've been a student all my life. And uh, I find ability and intelligence very slippery concepts, and I, I don't feel comfortable basing any ed educational theory on it. When I first uh, I came from a... a people would call it lower middle class, I'd call it working class background. My uncle who raised me was the coal miner and uh, educational opportunities in my town, my small town, in a little industrial belt in Illinois were very minimal and I didn't have great aspirations. All along the way, I can't, I can't speak of that experience. I, I rose uh, educationally wise far further than anybody else in my family but I can't speak at any moment about intelligence or ability. It was all a process. It was a process of trying to figure out who I was and instrumental in the whole process were people, people that would nudge me on or build my confidence or tell me, I remember being in college a year from my junior year and someone, one of my professors saying, what are you gonna do when you get out? I, I, I don't know, because it's not the kind of thing that from my background, people thought about very deeply. He didn't know what to do. It was the first time I had no one to turn to. And he said, well, what about graduate school? I said, sure. I had no idea what I was getting into. No guidance, no cultural framework to frame it in. So I'm very reluctant to quickly talk about ability, uh, people having abilities. Uh, it, to me, it's very judgmental and it's circumstantial and it's, it's a whole nexus, a complex nexus of factors. Not only myself, but my own daughter. My daughter, uh, through the fifth grade, had scored very high on the CATs, California Achievement Test. Fifth grade teacher calls me. Your daughter has a learning disability, I believe, or judgment. I show up with all the old CAT scores in my back pocket, and she shows me the new scores. But what does the new scores tell you? If all the others have been great, she didn't even look at the old ones. She made a racial profile, and, and, and there it was. And when, when you and now she has a master's degree in, in, in clinical psychology, but all along the way in both of our careers, the question of intellectual ability, ability, IQ, doesn't enter our pictures. It has to do with the teachers and the profound effect. And I think it's a generational thing. I grew up with the Jonathan Kozel uh, approach to education, the Gertrude Azorsky, the uh, left-wing attack upon all the uh, IQ testing, uh, 
not necessarily because it was scientifically faulty, but because it was inappropriate. It doesn't belong in an educational system. The educational system has always been designed to, to bring people up to a certain level. And the obstacles to that have always been socioeconomic. They haven't been ability. I, let me give. I just. I would just say that that, that last statement is just is factually is just factually incorrect. Okay, like there there are there are Asian students from the I'd, bottom. I'd, income I'd like you to prove that. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd like you to sure, prove I'll, that. Sure, I'll, 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 I'll prove it right now. There's Asian students from the bottom income quintile who get a perfect score on the SAT math. If they they're living as the children of parents who might clear thirty thousand dollars a year from the laundromat that they that they own. These are uh, immigrant parents for whom English is a second language. They're growing up in homes in which the uh, the the modeling of English is inferior to that of a first language speaker. They're suffering from having poor socioeconomic uh, outcomes, exactly as you're saying. And yet they are absolutely ripping in half uh, every quantitative educational measure we can find, and they're ending up in Caltech. How is that possible if it's simply the case that we can take a, a very narrow sort of draw a line from uh, uh, the income uh, range to so, uh, outcomes? I mean, I, mean, I think this I, is really important. Income is in fact not a very strong to clarify, predictor. To clarify, your, to, make, to make your point, to make your point, uh, I, I trust it's not just anecdotal. I mean, I've, I've, I've known people also from, uh, uh, I would call petty bourgeois or entrepreneurial backgrounds who struggle against monopoly capitalism and, 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 and bring their uh, kids forward. They come from a culture in which uh, these values are instilled in other ways. They come from a, a, a level of deprivation that the, the cultural values they have when they come here, the socioeconomic values are actually a plus for them. They actually are a boost for them to come to this country from their backgrounds. This is my anecdotes. And so I don't see that as a credible answer to the question of why historically in America, historically in America, working class people, black and white, black people in a lower economic echelon, clearly, uh, have struggled with school. We go back to the 60s when people like Kozol were looking at the disparity in educational opportunity in a ghetto school as opposed to a suburban school. And, and those demonstrations, I would think, demonstrate that there is a socioeconomic factor, at least grant that there's a factor. Okay. You don't okay, think it's so, perhaps decisive, but there certainly is a factor. Okay, so here's, this, this is a perfect example of what's called a Mott and Bailey argument, okay? A Mott and Bailey is where you advance a extreme claim, okay? One that generates a lot of emotional heat. And when challenged on it, you retreat to the Bailey, which is a much less extreme claim. Of course, socioeconomic status is a factor in which we can put into a, a regression equation and find out its influence on people's uh, quantitative outcomes. Um, uh, the question is, is, is it the only factor, which is something that is claimed over and over again in our culture? And the answer is it's not- I'm not claiming close. that, just to be clear, so we don't go okay. down this path too far. Okay, but I'm so not let's, claiming that. That, let's, that wasn't in any claim I made. The claim I'm making is really a straightforward one. I, I just why do I do want to first of all clarify I don't I'm not a uh, you know race science pseudo scientific racism person I don't think that the racial achievement gap is genetic in origin I do think that that is environmental what I'm interested in is the path of individuals through the uh, the schooling system and its relationship to their individual genetic endowment and the, 
let's take like let's take like parents' income, socioeconomic standing, however you want to call it. Let's broaden out even further. Let's just say the environment. Okay, the totality of the environment in which a child lives dramatically under describes no, the let's data. Let's socioeconomic. Okay, let's fine, fine. Socioeconomic. Then let's take with socioeconomics. Socioeconomics dramatically under describes the data. What you, if if what you were saying is true, every student whose parents were at the same income band would have the exact same performance in school, and that's not even close to true. Income is parents' income is in fact a fairly out, weak predictor of quantitative academic metrics, and this is I don't. People have decided that it is sort of politically convenient to pretend that uh, income is a stronger predictor than it is. Again, there in any given income band, no matter how how tightly you want to define that, whether you want to do quartiles, quantiles, deciles, whatever, there are students who do as best as anyone possibly can in school and as worse as anyone can in school. There are kids in the top income quintile who get terrible SAT scores and there are kids in the bottom who get uh, great SAT scores. I don't think you to... or I or Pat believe in that kind of strict hardcore determinism. Okay. So we can put that off the table and not argue that. That's okay. really not worth arguing over because it's a, it's a straw man for other people that do believe that. Okay. I don't believe that, you don't believe that. Certainly, I don't believe that uh, genetic factors are not uh, relevant at all. Okay. My point is, you know, let me, let me approach it from a different point of view, because I'd be curious what you think about it. I think you might even agree with this, mm -hmm. that, that in fact, education has been uh, the cutting edge for liberals to impose all the socioeconomic issues that America faces and push it into the educational system, force it on kids, and not force it on the adults that live in the suburbs that don't want black people coming in or working class people coming in. So they've really used education because they're too chicken shit, frankly, to attack the other issues that America faces, economic inequality, uh, the, the uh, uh, inequality of housing, the segregation, the ghettoization of people, you know, on and on. But they focus on education because they don't have the guts to take on these issues another way. And back when the, uh, the Supreme Court would not allow um, busing to go from Detroit into the suburbs, and they denied that, the experiment was killed. So if I'm right that socioeconomic factors are a major factor, particularly on racial questions, that was the obstacle for us to see if that would work or not. I think too many people have moved beyond it or looking, I mean, and I admire the fact that people are looking for solutions. Don't get me wrong, solutions are what we need, but education historically has been an opportunity to bring people to a certain level. It was not a competitive thing in any rational society to pick out the finest, as you say, the meritocracy. On that, I agree. It's been screwed up by, by, by pushing it in that direction. When I went to high school, 96 people, small town in middle America, the idea was to get everybody up to that level, some will go to college, some won't. That's all been twisted. And, but, but the mechanism that twisted it really has been the fact that you can take student loans out. It was unheard of in my time. People didn't take student loans out. They either got scholarships or they didn't. So the sorting process was... was, was let, let, me, let me jump in here and provide some background. Uh, when we were doing this podcast or earlier, uh, I, I chatted with Greg and we disagreed about your book. I really liked your book. And he mm -hmm. had Greg 
uh, has married a African-American woman and has two, I would say, black children. I don't know how you would describe it, but they, I think if you were looking in society. So when you're, when you're talking and when I'm talking about some of the statistical correctness that certain groups are coming into school systems with remarkably poorer um, foundations, and you could go right from birth weight to lead to this mm -hmm. to families to you know I, whatever. Mm -hmm. I I think that hits a nerve with you, uh, Greg, because it's the same nerve that when uh, Coleman Hughes was interviewing Charles Murray, he was saying, when you're saying these things these things have emotional impacts and and can be harmful and what i say is the fact that we don't say these things means that we can't resolve those other issues you have to you have to know that a a, a teacher teaching on the hilltop in tacoma with 90 percent free and reduced lunch and and 80 percent of the families are single parents that that those the the and then you take an educational policy like no child behind that everybody's going to graduate everybody's going to go to college everybody thinks going to be fine you're you're living in an illusion you know you're living in a public school um uh, uh creed that isn't related to the reality of what's really occurring i i, I don't know what what are some uh, no really what really about, what do you think about that Realism. I don't want to. I don't want to dominate. I, I, I'm interested in what uh, what Freddie has to say. But, but so, realism is is the back is the backdrop for all of our social problems in America. We have to be pragmatic and realistic. What I would suggest, if we go back to the Jonathan Kozell approach to it, if we had a situation, maybe Freddie would agree with me, in which we did have an equalization of of, of uh, school district funding. Uh, the teachers were not uh, all looking to go to the suburban schools rather than the inner city schools. If people were looking to uh, put the foundation together for an equitable system, you know, in a socialist countries, we won't talk about which they are, but even the Soviet, we'll take the Soviet Union, take Cuba, for example. It used to annoy me that they wear uniforms, but the uniforms were the great equalizer. They removed the socioeconomic factors that existed before the revolution. They put everyone on the same footing. They don't have private schools. They don't have charter schools. I think Freddie agrees with me, charter schools are ugly and bad. I think you do too, Pat. But if you have that kind of equality, then let the, the genetic factor play out. Yeah, do the sorting then. Then do the sorting. Then sort people out according to whether they can really cut it or not at different levels. Maybe it'll save society money and so forth. But until that happens, I'm just really skeptical that we begin that sorting process with all these socioeconomic factors that are going to taint, like my, my daughter's fifth grade teacher, her outlook on the world. And that's not emotional. That was real. To get through that period and get her back on track didn't happen until college, uh, college level. Those are, real, those are real stories. They're real factors. They're not emotional. Uh, I'm going to uh, try to dispense with the complication of race that's creeping in here by making an analogy, right? And I think that it's important. Um, my claim is that racial differences are, in fact, environmental, perceived racial differences are, in fact, environmental in origin, but that individual differences, right? So not just a Black student and a white student, but two Black students, right, who live in profoundly similar 
uh, circumstances who are in very similar homes who go to the exact same school and have the exact same uh, teachers and yet one of them is valedictorian and one of them drops out right perfectly common uh, occurrence i want to like make this analogy to sort of sort this out this this issue with race imagine that there's a tribe right it is a indigenous tribe that's living let's say in brazilian rainforest and half the tribe decides we want to go and go into rio de janeiro and become you know, it live modern life, and the other half decides, no, we want to stay and live the indigenous lifestyle. So half go into the uh, <clears throat> into the big city and half stay um, in their traditional environment. Now they are now at this point, it's so soon that they are genetically just about identical. There's no genetic, there's no consistent or standardized genetic difference between the two of them. Okay, one of them stays in a traditional hunter-gatherer sort of uh, lifestyle, which is associated with low, low levels of obesity, right? There simply were not a lot of people in indigenous tribes who suffer from obesity. Uh, obesity is a product of modern diets, the environment, in other words. These two tribes split up in a very short order. You're going to see that the, that the people who go into the big city and live the modern lifestyle and have the modern diet are going to become fatter on average than the people who are left behind on average, right? That's a difference between two groups that is powerful and is purely environmental, right? It's not a genetic difference. However, within each group, there will be thinner and thicker people, thinner and fatter people, right? Within each group, there will be people who vary in terms of how thin or how fat they are. And that has a genetic component. Okay. In other words, simply because the perceived group difference is environmental does not mean that there is no variation between individuals within the groups. And correspondingly, simply because there is genetic variation between individuals does not mean that the big group difference is, in fact, genetic in origin. Okay. Now, um, at some point, you have to ask who is being served? with a blank slate mindset that insists that every student can come in and succeed the same. It's made in the name of equity and social justice, this argument. But what it ends up with is what we have right now in the United States, right? For the assumption that the problem in education is socioeconomic has been the, the dominant assumption in American education for at least 40 years. It hasn't resulted in a great deal of, of social justice in the classroom. It hasn't just it resulted in a, uh, educational equality. What it has resulted in is a win winner takes all economy where the kids who are predisposed to succeed go on to lives of great material comfort and the kids who are predisposed not to succeed um, live very uh, hard marginal lives. I wanna look at the system as it actually exists and recognize that there's true cruelty involved when we say to you, okay, anyone can make it, your path is entirely determined by you, you are the master of your fate, when in fact some people have built in, right, intrinsic uh, hindrances and weaknesses that hold them back, that doesn't seem like a socially just system to me. 
What I want is to recognize the equal value and dignity of people who aren't as good at school. And I want to establish a system where they are taken care of. Because right now we have this brutal kind of capitalist health escape where if you can't prove that you're valuable to the machine, right, then your then the consequences are, hey, maybe you're going to end up being like a low wage retail worker who boss exploits you, who doesn't have health insurance, uh, who can't afford to take a day off when you're sick. I don't want that outcome for people. But we have to start with the acknowledgement that different people have very different underlying abilities. Everybody has something to contribute. Every human being has things about them that they can use to contribute to society, but not everybody is equally good at school. And, and what I meant to say is, I agree with you 100%, and you cannot say what you just said in, in schools. You know, you, 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 can't, you can't come into a faculty room and say, let's, let's realize that there's going to be varying abilities in kids, and we need to be compassionate, and, and it's this, every kid will succeed. Every that kid needs to graduate. Every kid needs to pass algebra. Every kid needs to go to college. Every kid, and it's this, it's this illusion and harm that's created by not dealing with what you just said, Freddie, that there are, there are variations. And when you try to talk about it, and I've tried to talk about it with dear friends, I have never had this conversation with my siblings or my friends without it. With, uh, without it becoming contentious <laughs> and and well, Pat, but, but let's make it not so contentious but my question is and I'm, this is hypothetical you, you've been in this situation i haven't so you go in a room with other teachers and you talk about there are different abilities i'm, I'm not denying that i mean you, you know if you spend a day with uh, 20 students as i have briefly in my career with uh, uh, college students yeah, recognize there are people that are different levels and different different abilities and different interests and a whole host of different just differences diversity and you're telling me that your colleagues deny that and if they do do you ask them how they can deny it and what do they think accounts for the differences in grades what does account for the differences in grades if not i mean don't they search for an answer well, no i'm not talking about not me and freddie it's it's the it's the whole profession don't they don't they say, why do we have these, these differences, this diversity? The, well, go ahead, Teddy. I'm more interested in what you have to say than me. Go I, ahead. I, I'm coming at this from a college uh, perspective. I, mean, I, I have taught in K-12 schools a little bit, but um, you know, the, the conversation just doesn't start in college, right? Because if you begin to have it, then you're told that you know, the concept of academic excellence is a white heteronormative patriarchal construct that's being enforced on the people whom we must liberate, blah, blah, blah. In other words, like they're just they're operating from a, you know, I mean, one of the things that people who work in colleges are very good at is like they're really good at compartmentalizing. Okay, I have this radical critique of American society and everything that's wrong with it, but also I draw a paycheck because I am a lever in the great grinding machine of American meritocracy, right? Like they are these uh, super uh, critical of the whole 
idea of meritocracy. They think the idea is, is, is ridiculous on its face, but also they give grades to kids who then go on to very varying levels of material security based on the outcome of their college career, right? So it's like in the context in which I've operated, it's just never even been, you can't even get close to the conversation. I believe that, I'm not, and I believe that that uh, distraction of uh, uh, of this uh, tribalism, this tribal thing about uh, this is what you must believe, this is the way you must look at uh, race, this is is the way you must look at class, and and the words are so important, and and it's a very delicate uh, thing. I, I believe that it's true, not just in education, but all in our society today. So that's an obstacle, and certainly is a cause for pessimism, but. Uh, Again, I just think that education ought to be the, we ought to ask the question of how we got here because when I was growing up, education could be for some and a real opportunity, it was for me. And at that particular time, America, corporate America, capitalist America had an interest in manufacturing. So you wanted to get people in my, in my small town, they all worked at General Motors. They all had to get to a level, coal mines were dying out, uh, proficient to do that. No one cares about that anymore. The, 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 father, the, the powers that be don't care about that. They care about STEM. So there's no real study of philosophy or any of, of, you know, for me to have an opportunity to study philosophy coming from where I did, but that's all changed. And, you know, I just, I asked both of you, how did we get here? How do we get from when I, there Let me take a certain level. To this hyper competitive thing where the, there's only winners and losers. Well, there's two there's two things. But before I do that, I want to respond. Uh, I spent a lot of time at Gates. I've I've worked on a lot of Gates grants. I've had meetings there, and there's this illusion there that we just have all of these metrics you can put in, you can put in a data display and and improve things by test scores and graduation rates and attendance rates and lack of discipline. When you really look at the factors that are affected by a teacher in a school, depending upon what, what study you look at, it's, it's 13 to 20% of the influence of all of those metrics come from that classroom. The you, you can't walk into a school as a principal and saying, listen, primarily you're not going to be the effect of whether or not these kids are going to achieve or not. But that's just the opposite of what do we say? There's nothing more important than just to, yeah. and then it gets couched in this kind of educational wokeness of equity and this and that, and it doesn't, um, that's what I think your book kind of captured in a way that there's so many other things that are involved in education and we get stuck on these things that end up beating up teachers and beating up, I don't know, am, am I, I crazy? Mean, I, no, I, I, so you, Greg mentioned the STEM obsession, right? And I think that this is a good example of how um, this sort of thinking that like we have to insist that everyone can do everything um, can hurt people. Um, you know, people will say, oh, just learn to code. Right. Oh, you're 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 poor. Learn to code. Just learn to code. Right. Um, you would not say to someone, "Oh, you're poor. Just go become an NBA shooting guard." Right. Like you would not say to someone, "Oh, you're poor. Why don't you become a a, a gold glove shortstop for the New York Mets?" Right. It's not something that you would say to someone because there would be an underlying understanding that not everyone can do that. Right. I am going to. I will say here before uh, the world and God, I would never have been able to be a computer scientist. 
Okay. I consider myself a fairly smart person. I try hard when I'm doing things academically. When I was in grad school, I was starting to do some, some um, sort of like textual analysis stuff as part of my empirical work. And so I got into learning Python and I was a disaster at it. It was, I mean, I eventually would be able to sort of, you know, put together how I wanted to do small chunks of things, but it took me so much time that someone who was talented at that would be able to do it in a quarter of the time. And so no one would hire me to do that, right? And that's a limit to my ability, right? That is a something that I just am, I have to recognize in myself, my brain doesn't happen to work that way. Luckily, I think I have other things I can contribute to uh, our society. The trouble right now is that the system, the socioeconomic system is very particular and narrow in what it recognizes as value, right? So Greg mentioned like the demise of like philosophy and the humanities. Those are things that went manners of thinking that have proven to be very useful to society writ large over a long period of time. And yet we have decided that they are to be denigrated now because they're not associated with um, necessarily making the most money uh, in the in the most straightforward sense, and this is what the, the core of my project is that I want to expand the number of ways to be considered a useful, valuable human being who deserves a good life. I mean, you know, maybe the 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 the, the very most basic kernel that became my book was my constant observation that in our society, there's more ways to be a loser than to be a winner. In other words, there's so many ways to be considered a loser by our society, but to be a winner, you have to follow such a narrow path. And what I want is to like broaden that path and to say, look, not everyone can do everything and not everyone has the same skills and abilities, but every human life has value. And if we're the kind of culture that we say we are, if we're the kind of society that we wanna be, we have to have an absolute investment in saying every single person should be able to find something that they can do that's productive for the rest of us. And they should be able to make sure that they don't have to sleep on a park bench. And that's the project. Trout, that's perfect. But then, and that is, um, what I, again, if you're a principal and you're starting off and you're saying we were having a wonderful class and we have the common core and every single kid is going to master every single one of these subsets of the common core, that's a lie. That, you know, you, you would never stand up and say that some kids just aren't going to get some things and that's, that's okay. And that's what those two messages I think are what we can say and what we can't say, and one's true and one's not. I mean, you can see this, right, in a new development in California state education, which is that public school students, K through 12 students, that students will no longer be able to take uh, a certain level of algebra in eighth grade that they used to be able to. So in other words, because some students couldn't pass it, no one can attempt it now, and they have to push it back to later in, in uh, their school year. Um, that's a profoundly weird way to achieve equality to me, right? Um, what we could do instead and say, hey, look, some kids are good at algebra and some aren't. I'm not, okay? I, I am in a disaster at algebra. I have a kind of a head for statistics if I look at it the right way, because I do a lot of work, but I'll never be a naturally good numbers person. And I still think that I have value as a human. And 
the students who can't pass algebra in eighth grade, let them take it a year later in high school, let them push it down the road a little bit and let the kids who can do it now, do it now in order to pick up that skill. But there is this sense that like, um, if our indicators of who is pulling ahead show that some kids are being left behind, we have to stop checking the indicators, right? Rather than saying, how do we broaden our view of what it means to be an educated person? I'm gonna change the subject. Freddie, you are just a marvelous blogger. I've subscribed to your Substack. You're my second favorite blogger. Of course, Greg is with his blog, CZ blog. He's my favorite blogger. But three weeks ago, you wrote a blog that was, why the fuck do you trust Harvard? College admissions has, does, and will always serve only the institutions and their incredible greed. And what did the Wall Street report yesterday about the elite colleges. Yeah, they are uh, engaged <laughs> in a kind of price fixing uh, to, to artificially change the amount of uh, student uh, uh, load, uh, aid that they give out. Yeah. To, um, I, I, it just was like, you know, right on the money. You were, you were floating around SAT issues, but basically the, they don't give a crap about anything other than creating this small 150 highly elite schools that then can filter through students inappropriately in, in what they would call a meritocracy, which is just the opposite, yeah. uh, in order to um, stratify and um, create wealth for many and exclude everybody. I, I, where am I wrong with that? No, I think you're right. I mean, the thing is, it's I, I talked about compartmentalizing a minute ago, and I think it's, it's similar with this issue, which is like, if you ask people, most liberal people, you know, do you, you know, the, the Ivy League, do you, do you trust those guys? They'll tell you, oh, no, no, they're, I, you know, it's all, you know, it's, they're, they're all, they're all elitist and corrupt, but they will sort of opportunistically sort of endorse them when they want to. I mean, for, for one thing, a lot of the people I'm talking about went to those schools and they didn't exactly burn their diploma at any point, right? Um, but um, look, there, the, it's, it's a matter of public knowledge that, um, when the Ivy Leagues and schools like that were initially founded, they were not even really that interested in education in the way that we think of it now, right? It was a finishing school for elites, right? It was a way to establish values, not to put knowledge into the head, not to turn people into data scientists, right? Um, uh, it was to establish values for the, the class of people who were assumed would go on to rule, right? in this case, wasps. And we know, for example, that uh, in the early parts of the 20th century, the Ivy League was in a very explicit conspiracy to exclude Jews from, uh, from those institutions. So you sort of look at it and say, okay, there was never really a time when social justice was sort of the purview of these colleges. It was a justification that kind of got grafted on sometime in the 60s, where it was suddenly schools had, had to sort of... Uh, sell themselves as being these vehicles of positive social change, um, which of course is on the one hand a set of baggage that they have to deal with, but on the other hand, hey, it's a great new marketing strategy for them. So now they, you know, they have very liberal professoriates. They will say all the right things about diversity, but fundamentally, right, uh, I mean, Harvard is, as many people have said, it's a hedge fund. I mean, it is, it is Harvard has a, a, about a, an endowment of something like $50 billion, right? Harvard could, Harvard could give free college to every single kid right. and still make money. Right. So there's no reason why 
Harvard would. It wouldn't be Harvard. It wouldn't be Harvard. Well, there you go. So it's important to say like Harvard creates class systems within Harvard uh, students. So um, these schools are selecting for the ability of parents to donate. They skim off a certain level of the truly academically gifted, right? Harvard wants their top 10 or 20% of their incoming class to be competitive with the Caltechs and the MITs, et cetera, right? That's important to them for, for nothing else than for marketing. But fundamentally, what Harvard wants is to select students who they know will become enthusiastic donors in the future. The easiest way to select a student who's going to be able to donate in the future is if their parents can donate now. Right. So that's part of the reason why, you know, when they talk about legacies and should they get rid of legacies? Well, legacies are gross, but legacies are just a part of the system selecting for the people who can take who can make the most money. And then within that, then you have students who are being charged tuition where, um, again, uh, the it's the amount of money that Harvard makes in interest on its endowment, just on just an interest on its the amount of money it already has is dramatically more than they take in from tuition, right? So why do they do it? Well, it's you know it's a form of uh, establishing a certain level of pecking order and of making sure that the students who are in the system understand uh, you know their relationship with the college. At the end of the day. Um, you know, I, I almost, it's like, you can't really blame a, a rattlesnake for biting you. And it's the same thing with Harvard and these institutions. It's, they've always been in the business of making, of raising money, right? Generating a giant heap of non-taxed dollars, untaxed dollars, and of creating an elite. And so I have, I have tremendous criticism for them, but I, I almost am not mad at them because it's just like, they're just doing what Harvard does, right? Like right. this is just what it's just now. It's a little bit more out in the open. You're in the desert. Don't it's hot. That, uh, don't you think the fraternity and sorority system and our lesser schools, like the ones that we attended? I know you went to Purdue. I went to University of Illinois. Illinois had an incredible fraternity system and sorority system, and they didn't have the prestige of Harvard, but they took a a public school like the University of Illinois, and they found within it a way to make a merit merit system. So the fraternity brothers and sisters, uh, sorority sisters, could all look after each other as uh, uh, through life's uh, pitfalls. So I mean, it's a kind of like a kind of like a small small time version of that Harvard uh, yeah. meritocracy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, you know, I think connected to the to the deeply connected to this uh, the Greek system, the fraternity and sorority system is. Um, it, the perception of being of partying at college is actually become super important for their business model, right? So um, schools like University of Illinois, like Purdue, um, they they do not have giant endowments. State funding has been slashed for a long time, so they're very tuition and enrollment dependent. And um, it's become more and more clear that we're graduating tons and tons of people who have immense debts that they can't pay back. Um, in order to sort of keep that flowing, you really have to make the kids feel like I have to go away to college, to a real college. Mm -hmm. And the best way you do that is you create a culture where in every movie you've ever seen on college, college is the time of your life. You're having parties, uh, you're flirting with other single people, you are you're enjoying the, the prime years of your life on campus going crazy. And that has become it just, an, it, you know, I mean, they'll never advertise it themselves, but when US News and World Reports declares uh, a campus like the biggest party campus on uh, in the country, 
I guarantee you the admissions department and the financial people are doing dance. They're just dancing in the halls because it's so good for them to capture that sense of, you know, we need to give them a reason to want to take on, you know, 60 grand in student loan debt to go here. Right. And that's why how our broken educational system perpetuates social injustice. You know, these, these, these systems end up creating problems, um, stratifying our society in a way of the people on Long Island, the hedge fund fellows and everyone else. And um, I, there's just great mendacity there. And I, I just, I love the way you were able to point that out very, very clearly, uh, very well, so. Thanks, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, Freddie, I, I think uh, you're, you're just a wonderful person. <laughs> Getting to know you in the last month after reading your book, I as I I also read your complete dissertation. Believe it or not, I don't know what that makes me, but mm. I thoroughly enjoyed it because the way you talked about the history of all the policy changes that kind of drifted us to where we are right now, and that's very clear. And then the reality that we've got a system in the higher elite schools that's that's un, it's unjust and it's problematic and it's serving a small population of people and that's written as a good marxist <laughs> well i hope that i'm glad that I think my, two out uh, of three of us in this conversation are good marxists i uh, i'm glad that uh, my uh, my dissertation is creating some positive value in the world. If you enjoyed it, that's enough for me. Well, I, I have two, two thoughts about your dissertation. Uh, I'll, I'll do the second one first. The, the second one was, uh, it was ballsy. You were taking on the, the people in Purdue, you were taking on the administration, you know, that n- them not responding to you, not talking to you. It was, there was a certain point in time that I think you just said, I'm just going to go all in on this and tell the truth and let God sort it out. And it was, it had a nice edge to it. It had some uh, insight that I thought was refreshing in an educational paper. And and the second thing is you dedicated this to your parents Mm. and um, tell me about your parents. Sure. Uh, my uh, father was a uh, theater professor. My mother was a nurse. Um, they were both, they both came from good lefty stock, although from different kind of um, sort of orientations. My, uh, my, my paternal grandfather, my father's father was um, uh, a radical professor at the University of Illinois, uh, first at UIC and then at uh, Urbana-Champaign. Uh, he, uh, John James DeBoer, he was um, uh, actually targeted by what were called the Broyles bills, which are these sort of McCarthyite bills that, oh, wow. yeah, and they um, tried to get rid of subversive um, uh, academics. And in fact, his, his name was literally in the bill. So, you know, you, you could tell what a big target he was. Um, and uh, my maternal grandmother was a, a, a civil rights and uh, civil liberties uh, activist herself. She won a uh, Lifetime Achievement Award from the Illinois uh, ACLU, and uh, my mother's uh, father was a um, uh, worked for the Postal Service for a while, and uh, you know they were just sort of good union liberal Democrats, FDR Democrats. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I lost them both when I was young. Um, my mother died of brain cancer when I was seven, and my father of liver cancer when I was fifteen. But um, 
you know, they were the ones who inspired me to go on a uh, academic journey. And so I had to uh, uh, shout them out in the book. Yeah. Well, that was great. That's good. Thank you so much, Freddie. I, uh, just a a word. uh, I really enjoyed this probably more than most of our other podcasts, because I think when, when people care, when they care profoundly, when they really, uh, issue, issue goes to their heart, you have this kind of intensity and I, mm-hmm. I, I, it's missing in some of our other podcasts, unfortunately. So, I mean, I think the fact that we all care so much mm-hmm. about this issue brings uh, forth a lot of, a lot of passion. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, oh, I love to, I love I, to mix it up. So, you, you yeah, know, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to do so. Anytime. That's a, that's a mark of how much we all care about yeah. this. Agree. Good. Freddie, uh, everybody that comes on our podcast, we give them a little uh, FE, Farmers Equipment uh, uh, Union button from 1945 that is um, the first communist union in the Midwest, all, all around Chicago area. And that's, nice. uh, that's the only bling you get, but that's uh, something you can put on your chest and, and ha- have spark conversation at cocktail parties or wherever, whatever you oh. do for fun in Brooklyn. Sounds great. Good. Thank you, Freddie. I really appreciate it. All right. I'll talk to you guys later. Thanks. Bye-bye.